So we are here with Fred Sargent, the legend. Um, and why don't we get started by talking about your very special place in gay history. Let's talk about the bookstores, Stonewall, Gay Pride, all of it. Well, uh, for those who don't know me, I'm, I'm Fred Sargent, and uh, at a very early age in my teens, I, I moved to New York uh, to be a part of the gay community, uh, which uh, was quite difficult at the time. That was back in the 1960s, and, and I had the good fortune of meeting early on Craig Rodwell. Uh, Craig and I headed off, and, and uh, he was operating the bookshop. He had opened it uh, a few months before. Uh, which was the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop. And, and uh, we uh, began to go out together and eventually moved in together and, and set up a household and a life. And, and I worked in the bookshop with him. Now, you said, considering how you were at Stonewall during the riots, I've heard you say that you weren't actually a big fan of Stonewall, of the bar itself. Why was that? Uh, well, we knew that the, the bar was mafia-affiliated, and we considered it to be a, um, uh, an oppressor of the gay community. Uh, the, the bar was affiliated with the police. Uh, the police uh, would take payoffs from the bar, would raid the bar. Um, it, was a, it was a very uh, convenient relationship for both groups. Um, you know, they'd, they'd have a raid, and then the next next night or in some cases some of the bars reopened later that night uh, and mm -hmm. the stonewall operated much that way mm -hmm. now what happened the first night of the riot how did the riot kick off how did in other words what i'm getting at is what actually happened i'm not talking about the revisionist history uh that has popped up in the past few years but what actually happened that night well, we were we were out that evening, and um, we had been down in Washington Square Village for dinner, and we walked up past the shop because we had been having a problem with vandalism, and uh, that's how we happened to take the route home over Waverly Place. And for those familiar with Waverly, it runs right right into Christopher Street, uh, just wet, uh, east of the uh, Stonewall, and and so we happened to to be walking right by it. Uh, and we could see that there were people outside. We could see a crowded gathered as we were approaching. And uh, the, the police were just starting to bring people out um, as, as we were walking by. Uh, and, and this is where the story uh, sometimes gets hijacked by people who want to change the story. They'll, they'll say that I said that we were walking by and that therefore we continued on by well of course we we didn't you know there was a, there was a raid going on we did like all young guys we we wanted to see what was happening and and we stayed uh, um, one of the one of the first people that that i i remember distinctly from from that raid was uh, stormy delarave she had been brought out and was struggling with the police uh, it was going to be placed in the back of the paddy wagon. And she was only about five or six feet away from us. Uh, mm -hmm. And she yelled out, why don't you guys do something? And of course, that's when all hell broke loose. Mm -hmm. Now, over the past couple of years, I don't know if you can kind of pin a date on when this happened, but there has been this sort of Orwellian rewriting of the history of Stonewall. And a lot of this rewriting of history started 
almost surreptitiously, people didn't really notice. Um, a few of my friends noticed because they're, they're older, they're Gen X or boomer age gay men. And so they started noticing that there were all kinds of unusual narratives popping up around Stonewall, which is very unusual because Stonewall happened not in ancient history. We're not talking about a battle in Sparta. We're talking about something that happened in the 1960s. So, and it was filmed. I mean, it was witnessed by many, many people. So when did you notice that the history of Stonewall started to get rewritten? Well, I, I noticed very late. I, I retired in the uh, 90s and uh, uh, moved up. I moved up to Vermont. I had a place up here, but I moved uh, permanently up here then. And uh, uh, so I was really out of the loop as far as what was going on. Uh, I, I traced it back now. And, and as you say, you know, back in the early aughts is when the story started to make a shift. Mm -hmm. I started being contacted by journalists uh, back uh, before the 50th anniversary of the riots and uh, did a number of interviews. And by the questions I received and, and some of the statements I heard being made by people, something was off uh, in the questioning and in the story. Um, th there was mention of trans women of color. And of course, there was none of that. Um, mm -hmm. th there, there were a few people of color that were there, but predominantly it was um, males that night. Uh, the following nights, there were a great many women that were there. But the group w was predominantly white. It, it was a white neighborhood. Uh, so th th this was unusual for the time. Um, but the story has been rewritten so that uh, when I was invited to an event in Paris having to do with the, the um, uh, anniversary, uh, it was being put on by the Association de Journalistes uh, LGBTQI, and uh, they their questions, there were a couple of days of questions that I answered, of course, and their questions were entirely focused on the people that were now given responsibility for having created a movement at that time, mm -hmm. uh, literally throwing out the fact that there had been a movement in place at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the people that we know today that were involved in the riot, uh, Martha Shelley is a good example, um, were, were parts of... Uh, were part of the Mattachine Action Group. Mattachine was a very staid group, but the people within the organization, like Marcia, uh, like Steve, were, were uh, wanted to see more happen. And that's why they were part of the Action Group. That Action Group, they, they were the foundation of the Gay Liberation Front. So, mm -hmm. you know, th th those details have been lost in this retelling. Uh, and, and it was when I came back from that event that I, I started spending some time reading what had been written, um, what, what was being said online. Uh, I didn't spend a lot of time online then. And uh, I, I found the story to be a complete fabrication uh, mm -hmm. and, and literally erasing the lesbian and gays who had created the modern gay rights movement and who mm -hmm. had been the rioters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. I mean, it's bad enough uh, that the mainstream media picked up on these false narratives and ran with them. But for the gay press, the gay press, whose um, mission, one would think, would be to chronicle gay history uh, accurately, uh, to drop the ball in such a matter manner and to 
uh, pick up an agenda-driven narrative, which is which is false. It is a false narrative. Sort of like um, I heard about another narrative about how it was uh, the transgender community that was uh, by the side of gay men during the plague years, which is also completely and utterly false. I mean, those of us who were there know um, that it was primarily... Um, obviously the partners who were nursing their partners through uh, the illness, but also it was women and lesbians. Lesbians were donating blood. Lesbians were by the side of gay men. Um, and to, to then rob the people who were actually there, the people who actually sacrificed during a period, by the way, where it was still uncertain how AIDS was transmitted and people were quite frightened of not knowing whether or not they could catch the virus from a kiss, a hug, you know, physical contact, whatever. And there were people right. who braved through that to take care of deeply, deeply ill, predominantly very young gay men. And so, again, this was another part of history that was completely hijacked and so easily disprovable. That's the thing that is so baffling about this. Well, it, I, can, I can tell you by my experience that everything that you say is, is accurate. The, the, um, uh, uh, the, the first few years after Stonewall, after that, that I moved to Connecticut and became a police officer and I retired and moved to Provincetown in the early 90s. And then of course we were, you know, right in the grips of AIDS. And uh, mm -hmm. I did some work with the Provincetown AIDS support group um, with the uh, uh, ACT UP Provincetown. Uh, and and I, I didn't know any transgender people that were involved then. There, I didn't there either. may have been, but I didn't know any of them. And uh, the, the people that were most involved because they had the most strength at the time were lesbians, right? Uh, and the, the lesbian community in Provincetown, uh, they they made it possible for men to live the, their last mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was in D.C. during that time, and I can tell you that I did not meet um, a single transgender individual, not one. Uh, who was involved at all in the nursing, the nurturing, the blood donation, uh, delivery of food, taking care of pets, any of those services that were so critical during the plague years. I did not meet a single one. So um, it's amazing to me that this narrative is unfolded, again, with absolutely no evidence. Now, if we take a look at, for example, Pride, and you were one of the founders of the Pride movement. So when you founded Pride, what was the original uh, agenda? What was the original mission statement? Well, it, when when uh, we first started discussing it was, was right after the riot. Uh, it, uh, the, the riot occurred on June 28th, and, and I was to go to my first um, annual reminder uh, that year. I, I'd never been before. Craig was the person who had conceived of it five years earlier. Craig mm -hmm. Rodwell was my partner and the founder of the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop. And, you know, we had all, all our plans set for that event. And that went out the window because of the riot. We needed to keep the store open. Uh, it, it was a, a 
like a clearinghouse of information. There was, you know, no internet, no cell phones. So, you know, people went to neighborhood places to get their information. Mm -hmm. So we made that decision that we were going to do that. And Craig told me uh, before he left, he said, next year, there'll be no annual reminder. We will be doing this here. We're going to commemorate the riot. And that's, that's really when we first started discussing it. Uh, and, and we discussed it with people that we knew uh, in the community when he got back. And, and uh, uh, in particular, people that were working in GLF, friends of ours, um, Ellen Broidy mm -hmm. and Linda Rhodes. And uh, the four of us decided we would go ahead and propose this at an, uh, a conference that was held uh, in November of that year for the Eastern Regional um, Conference of Homophile Organizations. And uh, that, that's where the proposal was made. And it was to be a commemoration. It was to be an event where everybody could come. The, the, the annual reminders were, they were run by Mattachine. They were rather staid. Uh, women wore dresses, men wore suits. And we said that the end of that, we needed something that was, you know, more commensurate with what people were experiencing then. There was an anti-war movement then. Uh, demonstrations were a weekly event in the village. And uh, so we wanted ours to comport itself in, in a similar fashion. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was our proposal. There, there would mm -hmm. be no dress code. And mm -hmm. uh, that, that was approved. Uh, in fact, the only group that abstained on, on uh, having the event was the Mattachine Society of New York. Mattachine mm -hmm. Washington did. Um, you know, and other groups are from the, the East Coast area. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's when we decided that we would go ahead and have the event uh, in June of 1970. Mm -hmm. So, um, obviously, uh, the, I mean, movements change, events change, they, they evolve over time. But um, one of the most startling transformations over time has been uh, pride itself, um, and yeah. it went to it became a big parade and people celebrating all kinds of different you know sexual interests and types of dress and drag queens and all that. But then slowly but surely, pride also became extremely commercialized, um, and it kind of lost its edge. Um, I've had many conversations with older gay friends who are really disgusted with what pride has turned into. Um, it's now almost uh, corporatized to the point and, and familyized to the point where people are saying there's nothing uh, subversive about it anymore. There's nothing, it's not even particularly gay anymore. This is the thing that people are objecting to, um, that there have been groups that have taken over pride that have turned it into kind of a parody of what it used to be. So what do you think about that? Well, the, the I can tell you a little bit about the change that occurred. The um, uh, the first marches were, were very simple affairs. Uh, it was people marching. Uh, we, we didn't have, we didn't have much in the way of banners. Um, there were no floats. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the signs, they, they were, handmade. They weren't the, the banners that you see today on, on um, almost like billboard type uh, arrangements. Uh, and 
I, as I had mentioned, I had left New York in 71, so I really didn't see the changes in Pride, but uh, Craig and I stayed in touch over the years until he passed. And uh, uh, the, the, the changes were significant and they, were, they troubled him. Uh, he, he eventually uh, left Pride fairly early on, uh, simply because the, the group, the Christopher Street Liberation Day and, uh, Committee that was organizing it, was taken over by business interests. And mm-hmm. the business interests were again, mafia influenced. Mm-hmm. So he wanted nothing to do with that. And mm-hmm. uh, eventually it, it got bad enough where uh, they had to dissolve and that's where Heritage Pride came in. Oh, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe 10 years afterwards. And that's where the corporatization occurred. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that it happened that early. I, I thought that it kind of snuck yeah. in much later. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you had some of the people like drag queens like um, uh, Marsha Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, that when they realized there was an event that they could go to where they could be on a stage, that's when they showed up and show up for the first Pride because mm-hmm. they had no interest. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm critical of both of them because uh, basically they were they were affiliated with the mob and, and uh their their interests were self-interest, whereas most of the people that I worked with, we were working for a cause. We were working for something for the benefit and the betterment of the, of the lesbian and gay community. Now, you just brought up two names, two people whose histories have been entirely rewritten. The history of Marsha P. Johnson is now so hotly contested um, and the suggestion that Marsha P. Johnson was actually a trans woman, which is completely false. Marsha P. Johnson was a drag queen. Uh, right. Marsha P. Johnson always said that she was a man, a gay man, but her legacy has been co-opted uh, by recent trends. I mean, it, it almost reminds me of how the Mormon the Mormon church will go back and they will baptize dead people, you know, and sort of bring them into the fold. That is exactly what has happened to Marsha Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Um, And wasn't there uh, a story about Sylvia Rivera being present at Stonewall also that was completely false? Right. It was completely false. In in Mm -hmm. fact, they couldn't keep their lies straight. There were so many of them. One of the mm-hmm. one of the lies they told was that they were both there, um, mm-hmm. and and neither were there, uh, in the bar when the raid mm-hmm. happened, celebrating Marsha's birthday. Well, Marsha Marsha's birthday is August twenty fourth, not June twenty eighth. <laughs> and and you know these are easy things to to um, parse through simply because mm-hmm. facts matter. And, and we right. have the facts. Uh, and neither of these people had any influence in, in the organization at the time. In fact, they, they were reviled. Uh, there were difficulties within GLF and, and, and also in GAA later on uh, mm. with, with their dealings with them. Uh, there, there was a dance. They, they had insisted that their group within the group uh, be given a dance once a month. Mm-hmm. And the, the first time they did it, Silva Rivera stood at the door, door armed with a knife. I, I don't know whether he was waving it around or not, but mm-hmm. he, he, we do know that he had a knife and he collected all the money and he pocketed a part of the proceeds <laughs> for himself. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what the rest went to, but a portion of it went directly to, to Ray Rivera. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Pride has gotten so unrecognizable that you were actually physically assaulted at Pride. It, it was Burlington Pride, wasn't right. it, in Vermont? Yes. So, uh, so what happened there and why? Well, two years ago, uh, September of 21, uh, I, I protested the march. Uh, and, and it was for uh, very specific reasons. First of all, the, the, the group that puts on the march, the Pride Center of Vermont, um, they, they disparage gay people. Uh, mm. they, their definition of, of the word gay is that it is a term of exclusion. Right. Um, and so I went there with, with a sign. It was my first sign, which said, gay, not queer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wore a woman, adult, human, female t-shirt mm-hmm. and just stood by the side of the, the uh, uh, march. Uh, no one really reacted to it that first year. I went, they, they did know about me by then. And I went there again this past year um, on September 18 of 2022. And this time I stood at the intersection where the, the march made a turn and I had a sign that said gay, not queer. And on the back of the sign, it was a red circle with a slash through it. And it said, woman face, black face. Mm-hmm. And when they saw that sign, they, they lost their minds. And immediately there was a counter demonstration around me, except it, it wasn't just a demonstration. Mine was peaceful demonstration. Mine was a silent demonstration. I was masked, double masked. So I, I was pretty quiet. Uh, theirs was not. They were loud. Um, they were abusive. Um, they pushed me. They shoved me. They, they smacked me on the back of the head. They poured coffee on me. One, one trans woman said to me, are you having a heart attack yet, old man? Mm-hmm. Uh, this, was, this was what I was confronted with. And I stood my ground. They, mm-hmm. At one point, they stole my sign. Uh, I, I, I move about with a cane for balance reasons, and uh, it kind of surprised them that I could move as quickly as I did, and I got my sign back, and I mm-hmm. took my position back up, and it, it really drove them crazy. Eventually, the, the crowd became so angry that they knocked me to the ground. It, it was towards the end of the parade, and uh, that's the picture that you see uh, most often on the internet now. Uh, it was the one that that um, J.K. Rowling reacted to when she saw it. She posted on on Twitter that uh, uh, violence is not a, a, a bug; it's a feature of right. this movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Well, I have been trying to figure out for quite some time now when it was that the trans rights movement changed so fundamentally, when it was that um, it was no longer acceptable to say trans man or trans woman, but then you had to say trans women or women, which is of course completely false. Uh, Trans women are not women, Uh, trans men are not men. Um, They are trans, they are not biological women they are not biological men and 
to call somebody a trans woman or a trans man became almost like a sign of bigotry. And this had a tremendous impact, not only, I mean, you know, we as women obviously feel the pinch from it. Uh, Primarily lesbians uh, have gotten it in the neck as they tend to, you know, they tend to be on the front lines of this. But it has really splintered the gay movement in, in a way that I would never in a million years have expected. I think probably because years ago, uh, running into an individual who was transgender was so rare um, that it was not even a thought that, okay, well, you, you put these people under the gay umbrella, the LGBT umbrella, why not? But then when the transgender movement shifted so fundamentally, where basically a heterosexual person was now clamoring to be under the rainbow umbrella, you know, um, primarily heterosexual men uh, who had decided late in life, much later in life, to make this this transition in whatever form it took. Um, And it left the rest of us saying, okay, well, you can just sort of declare yourself to be something, but you don't actually have to do anything about it. Um, And I have to look at an intact biological male, and I have to call him a woman and accept him as a woman. And if, if I, as a woman, say, I don't, or if a lesbian uh, has a man infiltrating a dating site, for example, and then getting extremely agitated when a woman who was attracted to other women will not have sex with him, we have entered into cloud cuckoo land but now this is the new normal. When, when did you see this beginning to happen? When did this change? Well, uh, part, of, part of what's been done is, is people are, are being made to fear saying anything about what they believe. Uh, and it, it's, it's not uncommon for people to not believe that trans women are women. I, I, I put a poll up a few days ago and there were two answers. Trans women are women. Trans women aren't women. Uh, the trans women aren't women <coughs> one overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly. And in fact, the few people that posted or that hit the button, trans women are women, they contacted me and said, I made a mistake on my vote. <laughs> I, I couldn't change it, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, that's not what people believe in this community. But mm-hmm. people have been made to fear saying anything about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little easier for me to say something about it. Uh, nobody's going to take my pension or my social security or my home. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's not true for so many other people. Right. Um, I, I know of one. I know of one man in his middle age. He recently passed. He committed suicide uh, because of the pressure that he was under. Uh, it was very clear that 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 had a role in in his act. Um, you know, he had been put through the mill in his HR department because of his mm-hmm. physicians online. Uh, and it's very, very difficult for people. So people like me have to speak up. People like me have to say, it's okay that you mm-hmm. can have your beliefs and you can express your beliefs. We're still a free country. It's not bigotry to say that a man is not a woman. It's right. just, that's reality. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Um, and you are, um, are you a founding member of the LGB Alliance in the United States? Um, because I know that the LGB Alliance uh, kicked off in the United Kingdom. Uh, yeah, well, when I became involved in this, one of the, the, the first people that I met online that, that I spoke to was um, uh, Bev Jackson and Kate Harris. Mm -hmm. and, and they were with the LGB Alliance in the UK. And we, we spoke about this, about setting up an organization here and that there were people that were interested here. So I participated in that founding process, uh, but I haven't stayed a member of it. Uh, I, at my age, you know, there's only so much I can do and, and I kind of limited that to an online presence. <coughs> right. You know, um, I think that we both remember a time when the the fear of the gay community was that uh, gay people were grooming children, um, and that there was a a secret gay agenda to convert children, primarily boys. I mean, nobody really cared about the girls. It was primarily the boys, and this was a very common trope, um, primarily among the religious right. Um, it was a fear tactic that was spread. Um, and it was a commonly held belief in right-wing and religious circles for decades, if not centuries, <clears throat> that the gay community posed a particular danger to children, uh, which was not true. But um, now what we're seeing, unfortunately, is that the medical establishment, the psychiatric establishment, um, the drug companies, the educational establishment, have all signed on to this extremely dangerous custom or this belief that it is med uh, medically ethical <clears throat> and indeed it is desirable and essential even to start drugging children at a very, very young age who may exhibit signs of being uh, gender nonconforming. Um, and this, I think that the fallout from this tremendous error is going to be extremely damaging and it has already damaged the gay community. The gay community that doesn't really have anything to do with this, um, but it is already impacting the gay community in a very, very negative way uh, because people will look at these activists and they will tar the entire community with the same brush. It is a very, very frightening thing. <coughs> So what do you think? The, 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 the medicalization of children, that's part of what I've, my protest was about at, a, at another demonstration that I participated in on October 1st. Mm -hmm. uh, the signs that we carried were labeled as anti-trans by the local press. Mm -hmm. the, the signs said nothing about trans people. Mm -hmm. The signs said gay not queer. That's the one I held, of course. Uh, the signs provided the definition of a woman an adult human female, and the, the signs protested the medicalization of LGB youth. And mm -hmm. uh, that, that's an anti-trans position. That's a pro-gay, pro-women position. And right. uh, so we have this problem, not just with the LGBTQI, whatever, press, but also with the mainstream media mm -hmm. uh, that's bought into it, whether it's the AP style book or uh, how, how they how they present stories in our local press here, 
uh, mm -hmm. their frame is, is always as though the people involved are being oppressed. They're not. Right. The, the, the group that I had the most difficulty with at the Pride demonstration was um, outright Vermont. It was mm -hmm. their people that mobbed me. Uh, they, they behaved like a gang. Mm -hmm. And they, they did the same thing again when we demonstrated on October 1st. They were organized as a gang. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, 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 for instance, the mayor of Burlington said these people are fearful. There was no fear in their eyes. Right. I saw, the, I, saw, I saw the attack. There was, there was literally no fear. Yeah, yeah. So it, 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 they've managed to sell this narrative uh, to the straight community. Mm -hmm. And the straight community backs them as though they think they're doing all of us a favor. Mm -hmm. uh, which they are not. Uh, they're they're letting us down as they have in the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the scary thing is that today there was yet another article that came out um, that was uh, an interview with a whistleblower from yet another clinic, but this time in the United States. Um, and this woman had every you know, she ticked every box of all the acceptable bona fides. You know, uh, I think she identifies as queer and she's married to a trans man and she's got, you know, I mean, she's got all of this and she worked in a clinic and she was talking about the pipeline, the rush to medicalize kids. And again, pointing out the phenomenon that nobody really wants to take a close look at, which is why is it that so many young women on the spectrum who present with so many um, other issues, whether it's cutting, bulimia, anorexia, right. uh, and so on. Why is it that there is such a preponderance? Why are so many of the young women, so many, first of all, why are so many young women going to these clinics full stop? And why are so many of them exhibiting these signs? And why doesn't well, anyone care, you know? <clears throat> you're, you're right about that. The the the, the targeting of children uh, is is part of the method here, and mm -hmm. the, the, where they're being reached are in schools. Uh, mm -hmm. There's uh, efforts in different states, including here in Vermont, to uh, introduce gender training at a, at a very early age. You know, some of the kids that they want to uh, teach this, they still believe in Santa Claus. Sure. So these are not concepts that they can readily understand, uh, and, and they want to be able to do this without per parental participation or consent. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, and the, the introduction of, of uh, puberty blockers, as as they like to call them, uh, which are cancer drugs that are that have been used to sterilize men. Um, mm -hmm is part of the method. They say, no, we don't do surgeries. That's untrue. Um, That's right. They do surgeries on young people. Uh, mm -hmm. But the puberty blockers, it's a, it's a particularly pernicious act uh, when, they, when they say that they block. They don't block. As I like to say, puberty blockers are not the pause button mm -hmm. on puberty. They're the start button for transition. Right. And the, 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 the children that are sent on this path, the vast majority end up taking cross-sex hormones mm -hmm. uh, as a result of having started on the puberty blockers. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. And, and the thing is, 
that there is now going to be an open question. Well, it's not really an open question. I think that the question has been answered as to whether or not the parents who are taking their kids to these clinics are actually giving informed consent. And I think that the answer is no. Um, no. Because for years, we have been fed the lie that uh, puberty blockers are no big deal, and all you have to do is stop taking them and everything goes back to normal. If you take cross-sex hormones, all you have to do is stop taking them and everything goes back to normal. That is completely and utterly false. Um, no, we've the, seen... The, the effects are lifelong. Correct. And, the, and the, the, the need for medical care afterwards is lifelong. Right. Uh, you, you do not recover from these things. You end up having to be treated for these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And what's really frightening is that all of the stories from all of the whistleblowers, whether they are speaking out in the United States or in the, in the United Kingdom, um, they are remarkably consistent remarkably consistent um, about how it is a complete lie that these young people are being given uh, proper counseling before they go through this very, very radical and dramatic transition that will impact them for the rest of their lives. Um, they are not, well, they're also operating under the assumption um, that those fake studies uh, actually came up with accurate findings about the suicide rates among young people who do not get the treatment. We have found out now that those studies are not studies at all. Uh, they were questionnaires That's that were filled out by young people who were all self-selected. Um, and were so prizes. They were offered prizes to participate. Correct. That, that's not a real study. No, it's not a real um, study. They, 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 you know, it's it's easy to, to start sounding like you're talking about a conspiracy theory. It's not a conspiracy theory. They've written it down. Uh, That's right. The, 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 people, the people that started to put this all together, this is back in the 90s, were a couple of transgender attorneys. And mm. uh, eventually, uh, an international law firm by the name of Denton uh, produced the Denton document, which outlines how to go about affecting the change that they want to see uh, through the legal system of, of whatever country. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's, a, it's a lengthy document, but it's available online. You can read it in their own words. Uh, mm -hmm. a, a good overview of that would be to go to James Kirkup's um, article in The Spectator and mm. uh, just look it up there, uh, James Kirkup, Denton document, and you'll see what is being done and how it is being done and how it is being planned. Mm -hmm. What do you um, what do you say about the social contagion aspect of this transgender phenomenon? Yeah, yeah it's absolute. Um, th th there are organizations that that deal with the families um, uh, of kids, and the the discussion about social contagion uh, is constant in these groups uh, about how the, you know the kids are picking it up at school, they're picking it up through organizations like Outright Vermont. And, and uh, these, uh, um, these, these children, while they're impressionable, they're not getting the proper support. They have, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, various uh, disorders like cutting disorders or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. it, it's being explained that if you treat for these things 
you're converting them from being trans. Right. So they call that conversion therapy rather than being just plain old therapy that they need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It just, it is, it is monstrous to me that it would be considered um, ethical medically to take a look at a young person, a young woman, for example, who is standing in front of you covered in cutting scars and then agree to remove healthy breasts. I mean, to me, there is no, um, it, it's complicity in sort of enabling a mental disorder uh, that have, needs have, to be treated with compassion and kindness and not with enabling, which is exactly what a double mastectomy at a young age amounts to. Have you heard of the CAST review? Of course, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, the CAST review goes into this extensively um, re regarding the, the, um, the, the lack of treatment and the, um, uh, the, the explosion uh, through, uh, you know, peer pressure of transgenderism among students and, and young people. Uh, mm -hmm. And we, we ignore those reports at our peril. Uh, and when I say at our peril, because what seems to be getting looked at are these, as you mentioned earlier, these phony surveys, these self-selected processes that, that um, really are, are designed to get a result as opposed to find an answer. You know, it's ironic because um, I think that any reasonable person would agree that what was done to Alan Turing was a grotesque human rights violation. Um, and we've all agreed on this. But now it's considered to be compassionate to sterilize gay children, which is exactly right. what this is. I, I think that we need to drop all the phony, baloney, be kind nonsense. Gay children are being sterilized, and people are celebrating the sterilization of gay children. And to me, it is incredible. We look at a regime like, like Iran, for example, and we consider that to be barbaric, because of course it is. But in the West, we say, oh, but let's remove, let's give a young person a hysterectomy. Let's remove the breast. Let's erase their secondary sexual characteristics. Let's do all of this and turn them into the sex, which they will never be. I mean, that is not a thing that is physically possible. And it's amazing to me that people are cheering this on. The sterilization of gay children is considered to be a victory in the history of human well, rights. And, and this to me is Orwellian. It is incredible. People, people don't stop to think about what's going on here. Children are self-diagnosing themselves into the situation, mm -hmm. and and the, the the adults are responding by nodding their heads and saying, "Okay, go ahead." Mm -hmm. uh, now, a thirteen-year-old can't make an informed decision about whether they're going to want to have children in the future. I mean, right. it, it's absurd. If, if somebody had asked me when I was thirteen about my children in the future, I I, I wouldn't have known what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, a year and a half ago, I had my great grandchild, uh, and, and the, these are these are things that happen to you as adults in life that you go on to, and, and a, a child doesn't realize that that um, puberty blocker 
that cross-sex hormone is going to sterilize you and prevent you from ever taking uh, part in, in, in having a family. It, mm-hmm. It's not a decision that you can make at 13 years old. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? We're letting children do that. What are your thoughts on Drag Queen Story Hour? I, I think it's absurd. It's mm-hmm. absurd. It's mm-hmm. sexualized entertainment, and it has no place in a library or a school. Mm-hmm. Uh, children should not be putting bills in drag queens' uh, G-strings. Uh, children should not be popping balloons uh, that are part of a drag queen's costume. It, it, it's absurd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, I didn't understand what all the fuss was about. Um, I had a friend of mine, Clive Simpson, who hosts uh, Queen's Speech, the podcast on YouTube. And um, I asked Clive about it, and um, Clive was saying, well, I don't see what the fuss is all about because it's like having a clown in to read a book to a child. And I I, I tended to agree. I I didn't see what the big deal was. Then I started to see some of the images of not only – how some of these drag queens were dressing around these kids and what the kids are doing. And like you said, you know, the bill, the money and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But also I became aware of what kind of stories these people were reading to these children and right. the messages that were contained within the story. Uh, my friend Barry Wall, EDI Jester, has talked at length about this and about how um, in a number of cases, they're not just reading Cinderella or Little Red Riding Hood or something. They're reading rewritings of these stories where right. the big bad wolf is the good guy and where children are taught that um, looking out, I mean, what, what do fairy tales teach us? They teach us about danger. They teach us right. about risk. And what they're doing is they're trying to upend the notion of risk listening to your parents, listening to an older person, being careful, sort of looking both ways before you cross the street. And these stories are designed to, um, they're propaganda stories, in a sense. Um, And that I didn't know. And now we're getting into a whole other arena of discussion, which is extremely troubling. There's, there was a a young man, uh, he's 28 years old. Uh, he's a out of work drag queen uh, going to acting school, uh, and I I met up with him on on Twitter shortly after I came back onto Twitter, and uh, he sees nothing wrong with what he's doing, and I tangled with him a little bit, and, and it was all fun for me, uh, not so much for him. Eventually, he had to lock down his account. Uh, uh, I've only we recently found out that uh, he was doing drag, drag queen story hour. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, to, to let you know how pernicious it is, mm-hmm. he had a, a secret drag queen story hour. Mm-hmm. There was no advertising for it except through, um, you know, callbacks and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And you would be given the location afterwards. And mm-hmm. it was to be, an, I haven't gotten the details of the performance, but it was to be interactive. Uh, oh, God. This is not something I would. I, this is not someone I would want around my kids because mm-hmm. part of his, what he does online, is he also says that his acting range. Now, this is a twenty-eight-year-old man. Is that of a fifteen-year-old boy, and mm-hmm. he wears Oshkosh Bagash outfits and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. 
So this mm -hmm. is not somebody you necessarily want to have near your kids. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. It seems like there really isn't that much vetting of these drag queens who read to these kids. And there have been some incredibly embarrassing revelations about how that's some true. of these guys have criminal histories involving uh, crimes against mm -hmm. children or possession of child mm -hmm. pornography. And it seems to be incredible to me that you know, teachers need to be vetted, people who work around children need to be vetted, but these people who were brought in to read stories are not vetted. Um, and then these horrific stories come out and it's, it's, it's baffling, you know, and you see the parents who are sitting there with these kids and they're all like, it seems like these story hours are, I mean, they're designed to brainwash kids, but they're also designed for the moms to get out, maybe not go to the park and just go to a drag show and have a good time. Well, that's one thing. I mean, when you're a mom, you're an adult, you know, but exposing right. like five-year-old kids to this kind of thing, like, what are we doing? It just, it's, it's madness. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it makes no sense uh, that, that you would put a child in that kind of situation. And the parents never know where it's going to go. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's the other thing that amazes me uh, as a parent, that you would not know what mm -hmm. was going to happen with your child. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you mentioned, not only have there been bad histories for some of these guys, but there have also been bad acts during the, these performances. Mm -hmm. um, Without going now, into them, they're not they're not pleasant right. to talk about. Now you um, you said something very interesting that I had actually been mulling over for quite some time, which is, um, as we all know, activist movements always have to keep moving forward. There has to be momentum, and there has to be a reason for people to keep on donating to these organizations. You know, and when when gay marriage was legalized. I think that there were a lot of gay rights organizations around uh, the country that all of a sudden found that the, the, one of the primary goals had been achieved. So right. now what do you do? Okay. Um, well, my thought would have been, well, now is the perfect time. I mean, not that everything is perfect and there's always more work to be done, but it seems like, okay, well, gay marriage is something that many of us supported for decades, now we've got it. Okay, so why don't we take an internationalist view and maybe support uh, gay kids or gay people in Afghanistan, in Muslim majority countries, in very conservative cultures, in Africa, places like that. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened. There was no impetus to do such a thing when it is so desperately needed. Uh, to have sort of an internationalist gay rights movement. Instead, and your theory is that there was money to be made in the transgender yeah. issue, and that that was one of the reasons that all these gay rights organizations seized onto this issue um, and held onto it so fast. And you said something about Kaiser Permanente and some of these other companies that were donating mm -hmm. money. If you could, If you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, they, they just just briefly, just on that on that point alone, Kaiser Permanente, they they were funding uh, support groups for transgender youth in California, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, remember, those children that went forward with transgenderism and transing mm -hmm. would end up becoming permanent customers of Kaiser Permanente. Of course, yes. They, they own so many of the gender clinics around the country. Mm 
Remember, it wasn't that long ago, there was only one or two, three gender clinics in the entire country. We're, exactly. we're talking about a decade ago, and now there are more than 300. Right. How did the need grow? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, the claim that, that suicide is such a great risk. Mm-hmm. Where were all the suicides 10, 20, 30 years ago? Exactly. That they warn us will occur now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's because it's manufactured, and mm-hmm. it's manufactured to make money. Mm-hmm. It's manufactured to make money for fundraising organizations. Remember, many of these people that are working in these organizations, their career is fundraising. Right. Their career is not politics. Their career mm-hmm. is not gay activism. Their mm-hmm. career is fundraising. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a, a startling article. I think it was in the Times of London, and it was a, a it was a look at the explosion in interest or attendance at the Tavistock Clinic, which has now been shut down. Um, and look, I'm not a statistician. Okay. But even I, an amateur who's just kind of interested in trends, would look at a 700% increase, 500, 600, 700% increase in the number of young women on the spectrum who show up at a clinic to uh, get treatment. And I would say, hang on, what is going on here? Um, And the fact that these people went forward unquestioningly um, and said, oh, well, I guess they're just a lot more people, a lot more young girls who want to transition. And, and nobody stopped to say, hang on. Now, the, the, um, the testimony of the whistleblowers from Tavistock has been blood curdling. Um, and we recently had a mess up in Scotland, which is still unfolding, where um, detransitioners wanted to speak about the rewriting of the Gender Recognition Act, and people didn't show up at the hearing, or nobody wanted to listen to what they had to say. They wanted to slam through this incredibly radical proposal, and wouldn't you know that a pesky rapist, um, I don't know why that rapist in particular, drew so much uh, concern when uh, rapists have been locked up behind bars with women with the blessing of the Scottish establishment. Um, but now, um, it, it's it, nobody stopped. Nobody stopped and said, what is going on? Is it really wise to lock up male predators behind bars with women? Is it really wise to operate on young people and stop lying? We all know that it's happening. Okay, there are surgeons who openly boast about operating on young people. Um, and the gay community is getting it in the neck. And the gay well, community it, is saying, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Look at the targets. Um, the, the, mm-hmm. the targets are lesbian and gay youth. Uh, and it, if you're a gay child, your, your life is a little bit different than the average child. You, you're coming to terms with something um, that that the average person doesn't do. Mm-hmm. So you, your your questioning becomes target targeting for them. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the same thing with kids on the spectrum. There, there's another group that's there um, mm-hmm. that people don't realize, and that's children in foster care. They oh, okay. too are. They're coming up with some very surprising numbers of how many kids in foster care are being dragged into this uh, because they're vulnerable. 
more, right. more vulnerable than, than the child in a, in, a, in a more settled family situation. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, it's about targeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this, is, this is something that we really need to address more strongly in our discussions about it, uh, the, the, uh, the the legislation that's occurring in some red states is mirrored, uh, not, I shouldn't say mirrored, but is reflected differently in blue states where they're, they're, they're actually hurting children and, and putting them on a, a, a glide path for transition. Mm-hmm. Right. Fred, I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time. It's really an honor to talk to such a legend. Um, So thank you so much for agreeing to appear. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. This has been very nice. Yes. Thank you, Fred. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining, and we will see you the next time.